You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. everyone, welcome back. We have a really special episode here for you today. I'm on location, Shreveport, Louisiana at the Panola Aviary, and you can already hear in the background some chirps and squawks and squeals, and that's because we are outside in a uh, in a flight pen at Panola Aviary. I'm joined by Jacob Kramer and Paul Dixon, and it's a really unique opportunity to visit with these two guys, share with us some kind of insights on, on well, what you as a podcast listener will be hearing but what I'm fortunate enough to be looking at here as I look out across the flight pen and the multiple ponds, we have uh, crested poachers, have white-faced whistling duck within about three feet of our recording device here. And uh, I don't know, how many how many species in this pen do we have, Jacob? Species specific, about 100 different species. In here. But in this flight pen? In this flight pen. Really? And of that, how many waterfowl? 30. 30 waterfowl. I didn't realize there were that many other species of birds in here. That's pretty crazy. So no telling what people are going to hear on this. But uh, but anyway, this is this is a great opportunity to, to kind of share a little bit about a, a very special uh, place in a very unconventional location in the northwestern Louisiana, Shreveport. You wouldn't think of it as the location where you would find a world-class aviary and one that specializes in waterfowl. But, you know, as as... I guess to to do the to, to get started with here for an introduction, as we look across the waterfowl community, there's all sorts of different types of people and and vocations and avocations, uh, whether it be research, whether it be people that have grown to love waterfowl because of their because of hunting, people that have invested their lives in conservation of waterfowl. And the habitat, some people do that professionally, some people do that philanthropically. Uh, and then, of course, there's a lot of people that work on the policy arena to advocate for policies that are beneficial for waterfowl, wetlands conservation. And oftentimes, the people that we talk about in the waterfowl community intersect one or two or maybe three of those different areas. But then there's folks like Paul Dixon that, that intersects multiple of those categories from, you know, kind of policy support to conservation passion to your waterfowl hunter. You are, uh, you're a, for all practical purposes, you are a waterfowl ecologist, a self-taught waterfowl ecologist. But kind of before I drone on a whole lot more, just uh, introduce yourself here, Jacob. 
My name is Jacob Kramer, and I am the director of Panola Aviary. And then here on my right, I'm Paul Dixon, and I like ducks. <laughs> and so what I think I'll do right now is give each of you a little bit of an opportunity to to introduce yourself a little bit more to our audience. And then as we're going to go through the rest of this conversation and uh, talk about what you have here at the aviary. It's part of the Panola Conservancy. And, uh, and then touch on a few topics related to how the work that you do benefits waterfowl conservation, waterfowl management, waterfowl science. So, Jacob, why don't you start? Yeah, so I have been the director of Panola Aviary for 13 years now, overseeing one of the largest and most diverse collections of birds in the entire world. Panola Aviary is accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. We have been so since 2018. And to have that distinction means that we have met the highest standard in animal care and welfare. And what you're looking at now is an example of that. These birds are in a large free-flight aviary with the ability to fly around at will very naturally. And where we're sitting at now, the birds recognize that we're not going to leave where we're sitting. And you'll look, the benefit of that to you, the observer, is to observe more natural behavior <laughs> on the part of the birds, which we're looking at as we talk. <laughs> yeah, or Raja Sheldog. Just ignore the Raja Sheldog that flew in uh, in front of us here a minute ago and, and the white-faced whistling duck. I did identify that one correctly. Yeah, right? that's Rod Crack. Very good. <laughs> yep. yes. and so anything else? I kind of got distracted there. Well, you're in what we would call a community aviary, which has a, a large range of diversity of species within it. You know, most things here at Panola Aviary are centered around waterfowl, which is our core focus and our core competency. But if you look around, you'll see various types of shorebirds, passerines, doves, pheasants, partridge. A lot of ecological niches within this aviary are filled by species that are non-waterfowl. And for me, as someone whose goal, main goal, is to breed the birds, I think a community aviary lends itself well to successful breeding from a security standpoint. They feel more comfortable and at ease in the presence of other birds, as they would in nature. And then, Paul, a little bit of introduction about who you are, your background, and how this place came to be. I've always been fascinated by birds. I've always been a very ardent duck hunter. And so I love birds, I love ducks, particularly just fascinated by every aspect of them. Um, I, think, I don't think you could be a, an avid duck hunter without being an avid conservationist. Conservation is one of, certainly is one of my passions, has been one of my advocates. I'm a businessman, I have a family business and operated it for a number of years. And uh, with the spare time, I always kept birds. And uh, now in the latter years, uh, my sons are all grown and, and uh, business is, is taken care of by them. And, and uh, so I'm able to, to, to really uh, advance some of the things I've always really enjoyed doing and building the Panola Conservancy is one of them. Panola Conservancy does conservation work, um, does uh, research and education, and also maintains its aviary. And uh, uh, really has expanded beyond what I would have ever expected it to. Um, Jacob has, has really been a, a, the principal driver of that. Um, you become one of the, the, the really the renowned favorites in the world. Uh, we're very excited to continue uh, to build on that and uh, build this aviary into a resource for, for uh, orthological research, waterfowl conservation research. And so uh, proud to have you here, Mike, and uh, one of America's premier uh, waterfowl biologists. 
and uh, proud to be doing whatever we can to to work with DU. Well, it's it's a treat for me to to be here. Never seen anything like it. I feel I, the other thing it does is it kind of exposes me to how little I know about worldwide water waterfowl. My bias has obviously been North American waterfowl. And uh, yeah, it's pretty intimidating walking in and, and with, the, with the feeling that I'm supposed to be able to identify every single one of these waterfowl species, but I just have to accept that I'm not going to be able to do that. But how did this come to be? At what point in your career did you think, I want, I, I want to make this almost, I would have to say, a dream of yours at some point? This is probably what you were thinking about. This is what I would like to do. But at what point did you say, I'm going to do it? And then what did all those different steps look like? I, I, I'll tell you, besides waterfowl hunting, I'm, I also like to hunt big game, like to hunt sheep. And the best sheep I've taken had been with a guy that lied to me. And he told me we're only going, we're going to there. And the truth is we were going twice. We we're going to climb twice that high. Okay. Yeah. Um, you take things one step at a time. And just like climbing a mountain, you take it one step at a time. Then you find out you're only halfway because you didn't see the rest of the mountain. And I use that analogy because that's exactly how I was with this. I've, I've raised waterfowl in captivity since I was a kid. It's Mallard's backyard. And now uh, I've got this. And in between, we're different stages. Um, it's hobby. And uh, like I said, my wife and I raised four, four sons. And during that period of time, there wasn't as much time to do these kind of things. And they grew up, went to college. And I realized at that point that there was a conservation purpose for it. But we have a second purpose, too, that I, we, I recognized and chose to try to drive towards. And that is that, you should ask me before, why do you do this? Because I love to look at birds. People like to look at birds. People like to look at waterfowl. And so we are a member of the American Zoological Association, which is a zoo association. And one of the principal things we do is raise ducks to put them in zoos. Well, by producing these ducks, by creating these waterfowl and sending them to zoos, we're allowing millions of people to share the joy that we have of looking at these ducks in zoos all across the nation and all across the world. We just sent a, a shipment to Singapore last week to the largest aviary in the world and um, are able to share our waterfowl that way. So that was the second purpose I saw. And that was, as Jacob pointed, about well, that 13 years ago. I d decided at that point that uh, I, I had another 20 years I could enjoy this. My business had gone well. And so I had, fortunately, the, the resources to do it, and I decided to build it up. And I wouldn't say I initially set out for it to be the best and the largest in the world, but we certainly set it out, I'd say, to be the best that we knew of. And step by step, and, and Jake is completely responsible for the, the heights that we've raised, that we've, that we've reached. We got to the top of that mountain. Here we are. So we're the, we're the most comprehensive collection. And I, I think the best opportunity for photography and study and research of any aviary in the world so the the call that we just heard, people are going to be hearing that. It's a whistling duck. Is that the white-faced whistling duck that I'm hearing? That's doing that did call? hear a white face. There was also a spotted whistling duck somewhere over there. Um, yeah, they're right over here. But yes, that was a white-faced whistling duck. It, yeah, and then you've heard a northern lapwing was cheeping a little bit. Everything in this particular aviary is from, from the you know, Europe or Asian continent. And a lot of that stuff winters in North Africa, so far as the birds are concerned. Uh, that's all kind of the same landmass, so that's what's in here. So, uh, Jacob, talk about some of the the accreditations. Uh, Paul introduced that, but uh, and and then in terms of sort of the superlatives that come along with this, the significance of this aviary, largest in North America, or whatever that uh, the, those descriptions are. Sure. So, 
Panola Aviary got its accreditation with the Association of Zoos and Aquariums in 2018, which is a pretty high distinction. It's the the highest level of animal care and welfare that you can meet and be accredited by. And and to have that accreditation means a lot. And on a day-to-day basis, again, like I said, seven days a week, we are in here ensuring that the birds have optimal care, everything they need to live their life happily in captivity. We have bred the majority of the species that we have here, so we know that we are meeting their needs because... As we told you earlier, when a bird breeds in captivity, you've met all of its needs. And that's what I strive to do every day is meet these birds' needs, make them happy, and hopefully get a few babies in the end. And how many other staff do you have here working with you? I have a staff of 10 people. Wow. Yeah. So at various levels, we have a veterinarian technician who you met earlier, Jessica Cockrell, who's you know ensuring the health and well-being of all of the birds on premises. We have several keepers that are responsible for feeding and, and cleaning. We have commissary prep, you know, getting the diets ready. We have maintenance crews. So, yeah, it's it's a full-blown operation. So, Paul, you mentioned Ducks Unlimited. That's another uh, big part. What That's how I know you. I first yeah. was introduced to you through your, your role on, uh, on Ducks Unlimited. You're a member of the Wetlands America Trust Board. Have you been... Uh, on the board, Ducks Unlimited Board of Directors? Uh, no, I haven't been on the board of okay. directors. I, I have volunteered to banquets as, oh gosh, I guess I was probably 12 or 13 years old. Um, and uh, it was volunteered to, because my friend, a friend of mine's father was one of the bank, was a banquet chairman. And so I've always been a uh, major supporter of Ducks Unlimited. Ducks Unlimited has always been a big part of my life. So I'm proud to be on the Wetlands America Trust Board. I've been on a number of DU national. Uh, committees. I was on the conservation programs committee. I'm currently on the public policy committee. Those are board committee. Yeah. Well, I thank you for your service to Ducks Unlimited and for all your support of conservation over the years. And I know you have a pretty unique perspective on kind of worldwide conservation because of the work that you have to do uh, to acquire samples or uh, um, specimens of different waterfowl species from across the world. And and I, there's a, a story that I think you like to tell to people, to, to classes that occasionally visit about the uniqueness of conservation in North America uh, relative to other parts of the world. And it's usually in the context, I think you were telling me of you, one of the common questions that you get is like, what's the rarest species of waterfowl that you have in here? So you can answer that question, but also I want you to use this as the opportunity to tell that story about the differences in, in conservation as it occurs around the world. Yeah, it, it, the answer to what's the rarest bird will not be one from North America because our North American waterfowl are abundant. Um, recently, uh, it was pointed out that most North American bird species, particularly grassland species, are declining. Most songbird populations are declining. But wetland species are not. Our waterfowl are in good hands. We're taking good care of them. That's not the case around the world. These rare species you refer that you were questioning, I would answer with various Asian species like bears, poachers, white-winged wood duck. Um, the those some of those species are critically endangered. So what's the difference? The difference is the North American wildlife management model, which is completely unique to to any interaction between people and animals anywhere in the world. That's because Europeans came into an environment 
with their guns that had previously been occupied by people who weren't using guns and weren't as effective at killing things. But these Europeans and their guns came to America where no one owned the land, as opposed to Europe where the king owned the land and the kings uh, selected the, the barons and the people who the dukes and the princes that owned the land, and they owned the game. But when, when America was settled by Europeans with the ability to wipe out the wildlife, they didn't do it because it belonged to the people. And that's what's un- completely uh, different about the North American model. All the public, the people of America, own the wildlife. Therefore, collectively, we developed this conservation ethic. And this conservation ethic is, is one that we give back. We leave it better than we found it. We, live, we leave the habitats better than we found it, and we try to, to preserve those things that, that we own. You, do we, if, we own the, if we own the wildlife, then we're more likely to take care of the wildlife. If the wildlife belongs to the king, then you're going to be Robin Hood and try to steal it, right? So um, I think that's at the core of it. But in Asia, to shift back to the rare species, uh, something like the bear's poacher, which is critically endangered. And they just found a new uh, group in China uh, of almost 1,500, which is great news because before that they could only find two or 300, but that doesn't matter. 1,500 of a duck that's not much different than a redhead or a canvasback is nothing. That's below what we call in biology the threshold level. They're almost certain to go extinct in the wild. Well, why did that happen with the bear's poacher that nests in Russia and China and winters in Vietnam, Myanmar, all through Southeast Asia? Well, it's because that is a pound and a half of protein in a protein-starved world for people who are living hand-to-mouth and living locally with no concept of an overall public ownership of wildlife. It's there. I can take it, so I will. And that goes on all around the world. It goes on in Africa. It goes on in Asia. But in the United States, we look at it collectively with our democratic government as, hey, this belongs to everybody, so we're not going to just take it. And um, that's that's a remarkable thing about America. Our system works, and uh, in Europe, they're doing a, a good, a be- they're doing a better job than Asia of conservation. And in in modern times, because I think they a little bit of the same things are at work. Um, but in countries, as I said, like in Southeast Asia, in some places in Africa, uh, the only thing that saves wildlife is hunting. It's where hunters are there, hunters value the place of value on the wildlife greater than its protein. And if there's not a value greater than its protein, then protein is going to be the value that that comes out and they're going to eat it and it's going to become extinct because there's too many people now and we have too many tools to kill wildlife with. And so if we're just going to see it as protein, then it's going to go extinct. And that's what's happened all through all through Asia. And there's many different layers to that model of success that we have here in North America. It started in, in North America with passage of key legislation to start regulating the take of migratory re, migratory birds, recognizing there is a limited potential for us to take them without imperiling their their populations. And then, and then of course, recognizing the role that habitat conservation, habitat preservation plays in it. And that that's where... Uh, Groups such as Ducks Unlimited and all of our federal and state agencies and other NGOs come into play. Uh, so it's a multifaceted kind of a, kind of an equation. I'll put in a plug for Wetlands America Trust. Wetlands America Trust, a, a lot of Ducks Unlimited members don't know exists. Is just originally as the trustees for Ducks Unlimited, but it's taken on a, a, a broader mission that underlines how important what Ducks Unlimited does 
to the overall health of every aspect of American life, and that's water. And we preserve water for our ducks, but that water is critical to all of our of our life. It's, it's critical to carbon sequestration, to to dealing with climate change. It's critical to healthy healthy the health of the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic, the bays. Uh, the the rivers in the West, all of this water is at the key of the health of our continent. And w- at Ducks Unlimited, we've always taken care of water. In fact, Ducks Unlimited and Watkins America Trust, its partner, is the nation's waterfowl. Excuse me, the nation's water engineer. We Ducks Unlimited is the most capable organization to enact the water conservation efforts that we're now focusing on throughout the federal government. And Wetlands America Trust is 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 the partner that focuses corporate America on those same goals. And so, you know, our love of ducks and our interest in conservation uh, doubles uh, up as an overall interest in water conservation, which is critical to every aspect of American life, whether you're interested in ducks or not. Paul, I appreciate you making those additions to the conservation. It's super important, and it's an exciting time for for Ducks Unlimited. And Wetlands America Trust, I think the growth of those organizations is proof of exactly what you're talking about. The fact that people value wetlands and other healthy aquatic systems for more than just waterfowl habitat or water bird habitat. It's all of those other services. And there's a great opportunity to to sort of magnify that role that we play as a conservation organization. And I think we see that with the growth of, of those organizations. And appreciate you and the role that you play in that. So I, I think what, what I want to do right now is take a break. We'll come back and get a, a few other things to talk about. Uh, Jacob, the, the question I'm going to ask you after we after we come back from the break here is is like what's your what's been the most challenging species to care for and maintain here? What's the ones that you're that you you may be your favorite if you have a favorite? We'll come back. We'll talk about some of those things with you. Sound good? Great. Right. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome back, everyone. We're here at Panola Aviary with Jacob Kramer and Paul Dixon, and we're going to pick back up. We're going to talk with with Jacob about which species have have proven to be most challenging to keep in in the aviary, but then also, do you have a favorite? I mean, we cracked the code basically with everything that we've tried waterfowl wise, the exception of the eiders. You know, we're we're close, I think, with this nutritional change we've made, but. By far, you know, over my time here, the most challenging aspect has been sea ducks. Working with sea ducks in Louisiana, it's very challenging, but not impossible. And I would put our success today in 2022 up against anyone else's that's working with sea ducks anywhere else in the world. We're doing some groundbreaking stuff. We're doing some really cool stuff. We've come a long way, and I'm 
you know, the gray hairs I've got on my chin are a result of the sea ducks, but I don't get any more because of the sea ducks. I'm very comfortable. Tell why, with our Jay, Why are sea ducks challenging? Sea ducks are challenging because they're sea ducks. We're keeping <laughs> them in Louisiana. They're they're, they're ocean dwelling species. We're we're not in the ocean. We're in Shreveport, Louisiana. So, as we spoke about meeting, you know, the ducks' needs, their natural needs in captivity is the key to success. And with the sea ducks, we've had to come with a lot of trial and error to get to that point of keeping them very happy. It's it's learning from my mistakes, you know, staying up late, wondering how I can change things, what I can do. And and the most valuable thing, though, is learning from my mistakes and not repeating them and doing anything else in life. This ocean's a clean place. Yeah, and the ocean is a clean place. And we have to keep it spotlessly clean. For right, things we're, we're, we're also not keeping them on salt water here. I was kind of wondering about that. Uh, whenever we walked in, the, the, that was the first group of ducks that that we saw, and I was just in awe. Saw the spectacled eider, the king eider, the scoters were in this little and this, this small. I shouldn't say small. It's 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 uh, it's impressive in the the pool and the the pan out front. Um, I think you heard the calling calling yeah, long tail. That's duck right, first. long tail ducks. That's old right. Were, I think I, I saw your ears pop up and you look over <laughs> when that old squall called. Uh, and so, yeah, you mentioned that it's really challenging to try to keep that water clean, and so almost sterile. I think you you described it, but but not salt water. Then it's not salt water, but sterility is key, and keeping it as clean as possible. That's where our maintenance staff comes in. You know, ensuring the ponds are kept clean and spotless. But the water source, the water quality, is very important. As we talk about, it's all well water. That's, that's being fed through 24-7 so the birds have cool, fresh, clean water at all times. Just very important in our warm summer months. Over the last few years, we've been really successful with breeding some of the species, harlequin ducks, long-tailed ducks. I mean, for those species to breed in Louisiana is, is unheard of, but we're doing it with regularity now. And what is it about the water like if it's not sterile, what's the risk? Is it bacteria? Is that bacteria, pathogens, uh, parasites, trematodes in particular. They're that, simply not adapted to the to the trematodes well, and bacteria that we would get here. This is an important segue, really, into one of our our met our goals in research. It, it, somebody would be asking, listen to this conversation, saying, "Well, why are they trying to keep sea ducks in Louisiana?" As the Arctic warms, and whether you get wound up about climate change or not, it is fact that it is getting warmer in the Arctic, the pathogens that we're describing, and it gets a little geeky when you start talking about trematodes and, and gram-positive bacteria, but all these are normal things in the center of the continent, and they're carried by other organisms. For instance, trematode is a, is a parasite that's carried by snails. So as the snails are able to move north because of the warming climate, so are the parasites that they carry. And the Ducks, of course, like to eat snails. And with sea ducks, um, those sea ducks live up in the Arctic where there's no snails and there's none of this th these, these bugs. And then they fly out in the ocean where there's also no snails. Now, pintails, when I'm up in the Arctic, I see as many pintails as I do stellars and spectacle eiders. Pintail, our, our pintails that we're seeing right here in the winter in Louisiana and hunting in, in California and Louisiana and South Texas, are coming, some of them, from the absolute northern coast of the Arctic Ocean. Well, those pintails 
can survive those snails down south because they've evolved to do that. But those eiders and that long-tailed duck, they don't go straight south. They go around to the ocean or to the Great Lakes where none of those things exist. Well, what happens when those snails, those vectors begin of those diseases start marching north? Um, we can test that here. We can do research here. We can prove what pathogens are a, a threatened sea ducks so that when populations of sea ducks on the southern end of their breeding range in, in northern, uh, northern North America or Asia begin to decline, We've, de we've developed some of the baseline data here as well. It could be this or that because we determined here that these were things that were, that were lethal to those ducks. Just like you're asking with, with avian influenza, as soon as there's a vaccine, we'll be able to use that here. We did that with, with West Nile virus. We lost a lot of waterfowl to West Nile virus. We were one of the first ones to vaccinate for West Nile virus and prove that the vaccine, in fact, worked. So we are a laboratory. So why should we keep sea ducks? Because we're a laboratory. And because the experiences that we're able to, to share of proven laboratory results become very valuable when mysteriously things begin to, to disappear in the wild. And you say, well, why did it happen? We're able to provide some of that. So that's the why behind it. Yeah. This started as a, as a passion of yours, a hobby uh, as a kid, it turned into a passion. It became what kind of became, came to define you as a person, I guess, as you went through life in terms of your relationship with waterfowl. But it's it's very laudable and commendable that you have turned that into something that gives back in so many different ways. These things are opportunities. Is, is like that metaphor I used to climb in the mountain. A lot of times you're thinking you're seeing the top of the mountain. You really see on the shelf and you get to the shelf and you realize you're only halfway there. And so that that's what these things are. Um, you know, the scoters you saw out there, there's three species of scoters in North America. And um, some of them used to nest in North Dakota. They don't anymore. In fact, they don't know, nest within several hundred miles of the U.S. border. No one knows why that is. And so professional waterfowl biologists like yourself and will look at me and say, Paul, there's more we don't know sure. than what we do. And, and so when you ask, well, why did the scoters stop breeding in the Dakotas? No one knows. I would suspect it has to do with one of these things I'm talking about right now, but we can, we can, if we can prove it here, then we can help those species if we see them decline in the future. And we walked through the aviary uh, after we first got here. We haven't, still haven't made it all the way through because it started raining a little heavy on us and we'll be coming back tomorrow. But the one, my head was spinning as we were walking through and you started telling me stories and scientific bits of information that you've learned and discovered here. Uh, but the one that, that really amazed me was that what you were describing about the susceptibility of the different of the three merganser species to uh, to trematodes and how that kind of defines their range as we see it in North America. Tell us that little story. Well, first thing is remember, we're not talking about mammals that are relatively geologically time speaking young. We're talking about dinosaurs. That's what birds are. Birds are all we've got left of the dinosaurs. Waterfowl are very, very old. So they're very well adapted to the particular niche that they live in. And I was talking about mergansers, which not too many hunters take much interest in hunting mergansers. Uh, I do. I like hunting all kinds of ducks. But anyway, um, common merganser uh, is found in, a lot, in lakes and some large rivers, but doesn't generally get further south than Missouri and northern Kansas. And they tend to be found on large, clear lakes and not found in what we call muddy water. 
Um, red-breasted merganser is an arctic nester. Uh, they winter in the Great Lakes, but then they hop and then on both coasts in the ocean. They then actually go very far south. I've shot red-breasted mergansers down in Baja, so they go way far south, but always in the ocean. Uh, red-breasted mergansers winter in the Gulf of Mexico, in the ocean. In the, in, in the interior, you rarely see a red-breasted merganser. Uh, if you do, it's a juvenile. You almost never see a common merganser, yet we have hooded mergansers everywhere. Hooded mergansers are becoming more and more common. They compete with wood ducks for boxes. The wooden mergansers are everywhere. Muddy beaver ponds, rice fields, they're all over the place. Why is that? And, and you know, I'm, I've never been comfortable just saying, well, I don't know. Uh, you know, if there's, if there's some way to figure it out, we, we try to do that. And we did that here. We figured out here that, that the, what I call the muddy water mergansers, and, and, of course, we have the benefit of, I just named the North American ones, but there's also ones in Asia. Smew is similar to hooded merganser. It lives in shallow or muddier situations. Um, and the Chinese or scaly-sided merganser, it lives in, in mountain streams, like trout streams in, in uh, Russia and China. So these clear water mergansers, we found that if they were exposed to a parasite called a trematode, which is very common in the interior temperate latitudes, um, it's, a, it's a blood parasite, it's a, a flatworm, a fluke, um, that they would die within six weeks of being infected. Whereas the muddy water mergansers, the hooded mergansers and the smew, seem to be able to handle them. Um, these, these liver flukes uh, sound horrible. Uh, swimmer's itch is very common. I got it one time. Uh, a lot of people in Wisconsin and, and Minnesota get it a lot. That's you being exposed to that same little bug that kills these mergansers, but it doesn't bother you, the human. It's a very common thing. All the uh, gadwall, widgeon, uh, mallard, teal, they can, they're immune to this, and they carry it with them everywhere they go. But those clear water mergansers didn't evolve in those places where those trematodes existed, and they don't have any resistance to it. And that's part of them just being a really old species um, and well-adapted. They didn't adapt to be able to, to deal with this parasite, and so it kills them. But that's not something that any ornithologist knew until we were able to prove it here. And when I explained that to some of my friends in, in academia, in ornithology, they said, wow, you know, nobody's ever explained that before. And I wonder if you're... If if you being a waterfowl hunter allowed you to see some of that, that maybe tends to, to not be seen by by people that aren't out there interacting with the birds in such a personal way. I hunted public land all the way up until my middle life. You know, when I was growing up with my brothers and I hunted rivers and lakes and public land. And so you're out there competing with everybody else to find a good spot. And uh, I traveled around a bit. I went to college. I went to college far away, Colorado, a place I'd never been before. So you walk up to a public lake or something, and you got to go pick a spot, okay? Well, if you're going to get good enough, you're going to be able to get what I call a, a, a picture of what's going to be a good spot to hunt. And, and it, you get it in your head, and what you're really picturing is the circumstances that the ducks either like to go to or fly over, okay? So if you've never duck hunted before, you're going to be in a random place on the shore, and you're going to hear shoot out there on that point. Eventually, you figure out, hey, if there's a rocky point jutting out into the lake, that might be a good place because you're going to get some bad shots. But moreover, if you drive up to the edge of the lake and you've learned what the sheen of pondweed looks like, if you know what flowering sago pondweed looks like in the prairies, you're going to say, ah, 
That's where I need to be. I need to be over there in the middle of that, of that Sago Pineweed. You're developing these pictures in your head of what ducks do. And as a hunter, that's just a natural way that you learn to become a good hunter. You learn to understand, you know, where do bull elk go in the middle of the day? Well, the experience you learn, don't go hunt them in the Quakies. They're not going to be out there in the middle of the day. They're going to be up in some dark timber by some wilds. Okay, how does that answer your question? I've been fortunate to be able to hunt all over the world and look at birds all over the world. And you do see these niches. You see these birds doing certain things and not doing other things. And it is a puzzle. And you piece it together and you say, well, why is that? And so um, I think that my experience of being able to travel has helped considerably. Um, but we also, it's, it's I think, um, an inquisitive, inquisitive minds, uh, want to find answers. And like I said, I don't, I like to have, I like to have answers. And, um, we do in, in our conservancy, when along with my brother, uh, Skipper Dixon, we do a lot of banding. We banded 20,000 ducks and wild ducks in the last uh, decade. And, uh, we've learned about their propensity. It's called philopatry to come back to the same place. It's remarkable. Um, day before yesterday on open day of duck season, uh, a friend of my son's shot a green wing teal on our pond that we banded in 2015 in almost precisely the same place. Seven years later, that duck flew back and landed in exactly the same place. That's called Philip Patrick. Yeah. We're going to come back to that here in a second, but uh, the, you know, you, you didn't, I don't think you said it, but it certainly occurs to me, and it's something that I point out often, the first step in the scientific process is what? Uh, develop a question. Make an observation. Okay, an observation yeah, leads to a question. Yeah, and then you come up with a question, right? right? So I think a lot of times we take it for granted, that simple thing, making an observation about a phenomenon of nature, that's the first step in the scientific process. And then it's formulating the question, trying to, the inquisitive part of what you what you were talking about. And, and I think hunters are, are fantastic at that. It's not exclusive to hunters by any stretch of the imagination, but hunters, I think, all of the things that you describe, because you're pursuing these birds for the sake of hunting and, and wanting to take those birds, um, you want to position yourself where you can be successful, and that requires understanding the where the birds are, where they're going to go, and and so you start asking, you, you make those observations and ask the questions, yeah. and and so that's that's something you develop that, that sight picture I was sure. talking about, and and reason I swung around to the Philopatry is. Because those birds will do the same thing over and over. They will go to the same place. And the you made the point of the of the why do we see juvenile red-breasted mergansers in the interior of the United States and not adults? Well, because they're philopatric, you're seeing the adults in the Gulf of Mexico because they succeeded last winter. They live <laughs> they did, to come right. back as adults. Yeah. Because they are philopatric. They, because they avoided the trematodes that but they yeah. came back to the same spot. And and the birds are showing us now with with satellite telemetry to an even finer level of detail are number one extremely mobile and number two extremely uh, repetitive in where they go and what they do. It's remarkable to the extent that which they are. And so when this is why it gets back to a habitat is so important. It's this pathogens are important. So is habitat because if you're a duck and you have to fly from the Arctic to Alaska to South Texas, okay? If, like that said, that that rookie hunter who just picks around the spot on the shore of the lake is not going to shoot a whole lot, okay? But if you're an experienced duck, like that teal we got last week, you've been back and forth eight times, okay? You now know the best rest stops to stop on. If you've learned last year that that spot had a lot of food, 
you're a lot better going to that same spot than going to some other random spot that might not have any food. Yeah, absolutely. So birds, wild birds, and ducks do go from prime habitat to prime habitat, which is why it's it's so vital that we preserve prime habitat. This going back to what we said earlier about water wetland birds in North America are abundant. Why? Because Ducks Unlimited has been focused on habitat since the 1930s. And the National Wildlife Refuge System has been focused on habitat. State Pittman-Robinson funds that fund state wildlife management areas to say, oh, we have a hawk. Yeah, so we had sort of had a little uh, interruption there. There was a Cooper Cooper's hawk that came down and, and uh, sort of caused a massive movement of the birds in the pen. Probably folks probably heard that. And then we actually had the our recording device here ran out of batteries. So we had to um, had to get replacement batteries and get started back up. And so, uh, Paul, let's kind of pick up where we were. You were trying to close us out in terms of yeah, the, I was uh, the discussion and, about phytopatry. Yeah, when the Cooper's hawk attacked. And, <laughs> and what we saw was all the birds respond to the Cooper's hawk, even though none of these birds has ever been actually threatened by Cooper's hawk because there's wire over their heads. It has been their whole life, but that doesn't matter. They, they're they're pre-wired to do things. Um, we really got some background noise. That's a pair of Roger shell ducks chattering there in the background. Um, the uh, So when the Cooper's hawk flies above the wire, they respond just as if the thing was on their back, you know, kept trying to kill something. And so they were all on the land. They all dove in the water. And that's kind of, we're getting back to the filipatry. Birds are hardwired to do things. I use that term to get it across, but they're evolved to do certain things and they don't vary from them. And the filipatry is a, biologist term that means love of place or returning to the same place. And one of the things that we find in waterfowl science is that, that we really have only now begun to understand just how strong that is, how these birds go from place, from specific place to specific place. Um, and it, the reason is it works for them, you know, and, and it, it's how they build resources, survive, go back and lay large clutches of eggs because they found good food sources. So it's something that works for them. Um, and it, it underlines how important habitat is, that we have these places because if we have them, they will use them. Um, and and they will go back to them every year. And those places are the, the, the reason that our waterfowl are abundant in North America is because we have good habitat and the waterfowl reacts to that and uses it. There are two things that I that I think people continue to find, no matter how much we've studied them, that people continue to find so fascinating. One is just the migratory capabilities of, of birds in general, but certainly waterfowl and returning exactly to the same place. I'm sure a lot of other bird species do the exact same thing. We may not be able to study it quite as closely as we have in waterfowl. They're larger body birds. We can now equip them with, with larger transmitters and devices and things like that. But I'm sure it occurs. I know it occurs in all sorts of other bird species as well. And then, then the phytopatry, you know, so migration, and then the ability to go back to those same, those same locations. And to know where they are. Yeah, right. And, and you know, our birds, we said when, the, when we've met all their needs, they nest, and that's indication we've met their needs. But it's sort of not necessarily true the other way. Just because they don't nest, well, we might have met all their needs except one. And one of the things we learned is if we get adult birds from a long way away, frequently much further north. And, and a lot of times we bring them here, they never breed. Well, that's because they have, when they were ducklings, they are goslings, they locked on to the spot where they were, where they were hatched. 
And if you think about a snow goose, okay, if the snow goose were to find a place in North Texas or Oklahoma that seemed perfectly fine, well, let's just stop and nest here. Let's not fly all the way back to the Arctic and Bay. Let's just nest in Oklahoma. That wouldn't necessarily work because snow geese are not really adapted to nesting in the environment in Oklahoma. So snow geese nest where snow geese nest. That's way far north. And they know where they are on Earth. It's remarkable, but they know where they are. We found that if we bring the eggs to Louisiana, even if they were laid somewhere else, and we hatch that gosling or duckling here, and we raise it here, then those individuals will nest here. Whereas the same species raised in Minnesota might not nest here. That's also a different form of philopatry, but it's recognition that they know where they are uh, from the earliest time, earliest days or weeks of their life at some point, they figure out, well, this is where I am and this is where I'm going to nest. And the same thing goes with wintering habitat. This is where I'm going to litter. Jacob, I want to come back to you and revisit that question. I don't know that we ever got to, ever got your full response to it. You've, you've cared for probably several hundred species of water, uh, species of birds. You have 140, what was it? 130. 130 species of waterfowl. How many species of other birds do we have here? Well, 260. Total. Total. Yeah. Some yeah. are gallinaceous birds, some are passerines, yeah. uh, some shorebirds. Shorebirds, even some of the ones you haven't seen yet, like kiwi from New Zealand, cassowary from Papua New Guinea and Art, Northern Australia, cranes. Are, yeah. there any, are there any that, I always hate it when people ask me this question, like what's your favorite species of waterfowl? And so I won't necessarily ask you what's your favorite are there any species or which of the species do you, let's say, take the most pride in caring for, have found most rewarding to care for? Kind of answer it that way. I mean, I've got my individual favorites, sure. But to answer your question, I'm most proud of just the work that we do here across the board, no matter the species, you know, the the opportunities that we're given from being successful with doing what we do is what I'm most proud of. The fact that, you know, we're here 13 years later and we're still growing and, you know, that that's what I take the most pride in. I want to do the best job possible with everything that's given to me. So, you know, just that that's my answer. But if I had to pick a species that I take the most pride in being successful with is pink ear ducks. No kidding. Yeah. Why is that? Well, because up until we started really having great success with them only a few years ago, no one really was. And, you know, being able to send, you know, our first surplus of pink ear ducks out to other zoos in North America recently, like this year, has been, I'm, I'm very proud of that. Nobody and, else could keep them alive as babies. Right. The Rearing them as, as babies is very challenging. They're, they're highly specialized. We have the, <laughs> the white-faced whistling duck decided to come back. <laughs> we'll have to try to usher him back. one of my favorites. <laughs> if he'll be, if it'll be there quiet. He there we go. There, he there we go. Had to give him a little, Off again. little assistance getting back down to the, other, to the pool. <laughs> um, so let's see, where were we before we were greeted by the white-faced whistling duck? Uh, we're talking about favorite ducks. Yeah. He, he did have a Hartlove's duck on his groom cake when he got married. Oh, no yeah. kidding. Hartlove's duck is from Equatorial Africa. And, I, you know, I, you carry with you little pictures of your 
of your experiences and Jacob has experiences in Africa. Yeah, I, I worked in Nigeria for two years. That's what I was doing when I met Mr. Dixon, just through a mutual contact in really? the bird world. And that's how our relationship started, was just through that mutual contact. And I've been here ever since. But yeah, seeing Hartlob's ducks in Western Africa, but seeing them as a child at the Audubon Zoo, something about them caught my attention and captivated me. And we have bred more heart ducks in captivity than anywhere else in the world. I can confidently say that. And we brought in new genetics of that species back in 2013, and we've really turned them around. And we've gotten to the point where we've sent them all over the world. We've sent them to Europe. We've sent them to Singapore and countless zoos in North America and private collections as well. So I'm very proud of that. It, it, it was funny that you talk about experiences, the, the observation. I was sitting in a Mashan, Cameroon rainforest looking for a forest Sitatunga, hoping one would come out. And there was a pair of heartlands ducks in this mud hole. And in the rainforest, the only open sky is below water. And there are sunken places. And so that's the only way sunlight gets down. Well, sunlight produces energy, right? So you have you have life in the canopy. The only place you have life on the ground is where the sunlight gets through what's in the wetland. So here I'm looking out over a wetland. You know, I like wetlands. And there's a pair of heartlands ducks down there. And they're feeding. I like ducks. Well, I remember reading literature that it's not really known where heartland ducks roost at night or even if they prefer trees to nest in. So here's a fairly common species, but in a remote part of the world, no, nobody really knows anything about it. And it's getting late evening, and I'm hoping that they're going to come out. And uh, the, the, the Sinatonga I'm looking for, maybe a, maybe a buffalo, forest dwarf forest buffalo, and the two heartland duck take off right at evening, and they fly across the wetland up into a huge 250-foot-tall rainforest tree that has a hollow limb, and the female goes in the hollow limb, and the male sits on top of it. I went, aha! <laughs> observation! <laughs> and so when Jacob and I started working with harmless ducks, we took that observation to heart and made sure those harmless ducks had those kind of opportunities to nest in cavities, and in fact, they did. And I think a lot of people hadn't been providing them full-winged access to large areas where they could fly up and feel secure. Guys, we've covered a lot of ground here. There's a lot of other things that we could talk about, but for the sake of time, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Um, I will, I'll probably be sending you an email or ringing your phone and with, with a whole other list of ideas and topics that I'd like to, like to discuss. Um, and obviously, that would involve me asking if we could come back here and do Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> Love back to have you back. Self, selfish motive there, but, but that's okay. But yeah, I do appreciate the opportunity to spend time with you all here today and, and show us around the facility. Now, people, if people want to know more, learn more about the Panola Aviary, they can go to www.panola.net. That's P-I-N-O-L-A.net. Uh, this is, I think, one of the things that I, uh, well, I haven't asked you yet, but people may wonder, origin of the name Panola. That's actually a Choctaw word for cotton. And uh, one of our earliest waterfowl conservation areas was named Panola Plantation way back in the 1800s. And so it brought the name of the conservancy and everything else is under that umbrella. Now, the website is panola.net. Is there information on there about the aviary as well as the conservancy? Uh, the website is the aviary. There's uh, live webcams, lots of photographs, uh, our J Jacob's blog, as well as on uh, social media. Okay. Yeah, the various social media accounts. What are we on here? Facebook and Instagram. Just uh, search for Panola Aviary. You should be able to find that. 
world-class facility. Uh, people may be wondering, uh, is it, are you open to the public? Do you take in uh, kind of visits from, well, is it open to the public? I, you do take in occasional visits from an educational purpose, but is it is it open to the public? We're a breeding and research facility, and you just really can't do both. Um, to be on public display all the time really precludes even what we're doing right now. Um, and so we're happy to, 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 to help educate, to, to talk about conservation like we are in this podcast. Um, but in order to be able to breed and produce and share these waterfowl with other zoos and, and aviaries around the country, to be able to, to offer this up as a laboratory for research, we can't also be you know, under public display. So um, we are a research and breeding facility, but, but not a public display zoo. To close out, which species or who was, who, who was doing that calling? I, I heard a magpie goose. Okay. I heard uh, some black winged stilts. Um, I think it was probably some, the magpie goose. It was the magpie geese yeah. that caught your attention. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, okay, well, I guess I got distracted again. This is probably everything to close out. Jacob, Paul, thank you all so much. I'm I've kind of, uh, I, I'm sort of beside myself amongst all these waterfowl and all the other birds, but it's been great. Appreciate you guys. It's been a pleasure. All right, enjoyed it. A very special thanks to our guests on today's episode, Jacob Kramer and Paul Dixon. We appreciate their time, their their passion, their commitment to waterfowl, avian conservation, and everything that they're doing here. It's an absolute world-class facility. I encourage you to check it out online. Follow them on on social media accounts. Yeah, you'll, you'll see a lot of stuff that will, that will infatuate you. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great job he does with these episodes. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and we thank you for your support and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.